chapter 15, Let Our Light Shine. As best as I can recall, it was back in the 70s when the church put on a push for families to take pride in their heritage. There were many different ways that we were encouraged to do this, including making a family flag. The idea of making a flag that represented our family was challenging, but it was also exciting. As a family, we discussed what our flag should say. Many ideas were put on the table, some very acceptable. But when the right one came along, we all instinctively knew that it was the one for us. The theme of our flag was to be, let our light shine. The symbol of our flag would be a flaming torch, like the one held by the Statue of Liberty. That same symbol that found its place on our flag is now inscribed on the headstone that marks the spot of Molly's final resting place and of mine to be. When Molly and I bought the property on Bell Lane, we were really excited to move in because of all the great things that were there for our family. The problem was that part of the agreement of the sale was that the former owners could stay in a home until they could make arrangements to move. It was hard for us to wait for that to happen. We were so excited, we couldn't stand not being able to fully explore the eight acres we had just purchased. So, on several occasions, we would just sneak into the property just to look around at what was ours. I remember one time we entered the creek bed a few hundred yards east of the property and walked along the edge of the creek until we could see our land. It was magnificent. We made a pledge to each other and to God right then and there that we would share the blessings of that property. That pledge was a great part of what made the theme of our flag come to life. Our home soon became a gathering place for friends of all ages and backgrounds. It was gratifying to us that our children always felt comfortable about inviting their friends there. I can remember many times having an extra face or two in the crowd when we were about to have family night or family prayer. We always enjoyed inviting whoever was there to participate and become a part of what we were doing. Our home also became the place for many special events, including weddings, receptions, firesides, church get-togethers, family reunions, and things like that. However, it was our annual Halloween parties and Christmas productions that became our trademarks. The birth of the Halloween party was actually at the Frames home. It was on a year that Halloween fell on a Sunday. The Frames organized a celebration to be held on Saturday night instead of Sunday. Several families were involved. If I remember correctly, besides the Frames and the Sorensons, there were the Seifords, the Olsons, the Durants, and the Fries, and probably some others as well. 
The frames decorated their home and assigned each family to a different trick-or-treat station. The party was a great success. Everyone had a lot of fun, and we all felt good about not having our children trick-or-treat on the Sabbath. The next time Halloween fell on a Sunday, we decided to have the Saturday night party at our property. By then, we were living in our home on Bell Lane and had plenty of room for such a gathering. We did everything pretty much the same as the frames had done, except we added a haunted house. The old, unoccupied two-story house on our property was perfect. That place was spooky, even in the broad daylight. frames party, ours was also a big success, so much so that it prompted our decision to make the party an annual affair. In the years following, we added a hayride using our old wooden steel-wheeled wagon. The wagon was fairly small, but still, we could transport upwards of 12 people at a time. We pulled the dilapidated old wagon creaking and groaning around the property with our 1950 Ford 8M tractor. As we crept along our little route, ghosts and goblins would sometimes jump from behind the trees or come running out of the creek bed to accost our travelers. At one Halloween party, we even had a headless horseman come galloping by. Our guests also enjoyed pumpkin carving contest, apple bobbing, and costume contest. Year after year, Gert Jensen would come and provide a magic show that was a delight to everyone. His wife, Lori, would generously bring trays of donuts and cookies to add to our refreshment table. Once, we even had a live band at our celebration. The party grew rapidly. In just a matter of a few years, we went from having just a small number of guests to having between two and three hundred. One year, we had so many teenagers, the local police had to show up and keep things from getting out of hand. Our sons were in charge of the haunted house, a project they were very proud of. Each year they worked on improving and perfecting it, trying their best to outdo their previous efforts. The haunted house was eventually moved to the barn where it evolved into a legend. The boys would start building several weeks before Halloween and inevitably would work on it right up to the minute the party started. There were mazes and secret passages, places where you couldn't see your hand in front of your face and places where you were blinded by flashing strobe lights. Places where you had to get on your hands and your knees and crawl through small openings to get to the next section, never knowing when someone or something was going to come out of the dark and grab you. There were dead ends and places where doors would shut behind you and you would find yourself momentarily trapped. One year, the boys built a bridge over a fog-covered moat with a witch straining her brew off to one side. All of this inside of the barn. There was a 
blood-splattered operating room complete with a demented doctor who spent the night removing entrails from a terrorized patient. There were frightening ghouls that appeared out of nowhere and scared the bejeebers out of those who dared to enter. And perhaps scariest of all, there was a crazed chainsaw killer roaming through the halls, rooms, and chambers intermittently firing up his chainsaw, minus the chain, of course, and soliciting the appropriate screams from all the girls. Nerve-pulsating music from Dracula, constantly playing in the background like the thump, thump, Lines of teenagers formed to go through the haunted house, some making several trips. To tell you the truth, the place scared me, and I knew exactly what was going to happen. Each year, Molly would vehemently complain that it was too graphic and that it would give the little children nightmares. But the boys and I always managed to overrule her. I guess some of us just never grow up. Within a year or so after we started having the party, Molly decided that it would be fun to add an old-fashioned melodrama. That was the beginning of another great tradition. Molly became the in-house writer and director. Every year, she would create an exciting original melodrama. I was elected to be the production and stage manager and as such provided all the electrical cords, lighting, sound, scenery, and staging necessary for each production. Because of my work in construction, I had access to a portable stage, lighting, and a dozen or so construction extension cords necessary to provide the outdoor electricity. Molly's brother Dave was one of the perennial stars of the melodramas and was, as he said, quote, caught up in Molly's tornado, unquote. There were others who joined him, like Bill Mon and Lynn Walkenhorst. They became regulars as well. Molly's little tornado also pulled in Johnny and Linda Miller one year. And even I couldn't hide behind my role as a stage manager and was eventually coached into being an actor. I think I appeared in at least three of the melodramas. Norman and Ingrid were visiting us one year during Halloween and were also naturally pulled into Molly's tornado. They became the stars of the show that year and did a great job. We didn't know it at the time, but that was to be the last year of our Halloween parties. I believe the year was 1998. About five years after we first started having these parties, Molly and I were discussing the successes we had experienced. Our little party had grown from just a few families attending to several hundred guests each year. We thought it was great and felt that we were keeping the covenant that we had made concerning the land. But Molly was troubled. She said, It's wonderful that so many people come here and enjoy our property and the party. 
They know we believe in having a lot of fun, but they don't really know what we believe in. We need to do something that will share our feelings about the gospel. That thought, that statement, was the seed that eventually germinated into our Christmas reenactment. first year was very simple. A couple of nights before Christmas, we spontaneously invited a few families to come to our home to celebrate the birth of our Savior with us. We had previously built a simple manger scene in the corral of our barn. The night of the celebration, we gathered on the front steps of our porch and told the story of the first Christmas. When we came to the part about Joseph and Mary traveling to Bethlehem, a prearranged Joseph entered from out of the dark, leading our horse. On the back of the horse was the expectant Mary. As they came on the scene and walked through our little gathering, we all fell in line behind them and followed as they journeyed to the stable. As we stood around the corral on that cold December night, we were able to somewhat appreciate the humble circumstances in which our Savior came into this world. Later, we sang Christmas carols around a warm bonfire and had some cookies and hot chocolate. That was the beginning. Eventually, like the Halloween party, the Christmas reenactment became an annual event and even eclipsed the popularity of the Halloween parties. Within just a few years, it became so popular that we extended our production from one night to four nights, the last night being Christmas Eve. Our property was perfect for this production. Using much of the same construction equipment and supplies we used for the Halloween parties, we were able to build our own little town of Bethlehem. Aluminum scaffolding and some basic construction lumber formed the outer framing of the town. This framing was then covered with a combination of black felt and gunny sack material. Palm branches were added for effect. Each shop in Bethlehem appeared to be lighted by kerosene hurricane lanterns. Actually, there were hidden electrical lights that provided most of the light. The shops were decorated and manned by volunteer friends. All shopkeepers and guests were asked to dress according to the time of Jesus. Our little town of Bethlehem included a bread shop, a soup shop, a shop that served hot drinks, a marketplace, a shop where children could learn to write Hebrew, a shop where they could make little leather souvenirs, and we even had a shop with a candy maker. The Roman tax collector set off to one side on an elaborate raised platform. To complete the scene, we had a couple of small bonfires burning. The fires and the lighting of the shops caused our huge oak trees to cast long shadows across the lawn in front of Bethlehem.
Joseph and Mary eventually entered Bethlehem, Mary sitting on the back of a horse. As they approached the inn, they asked strangers along the way if they knew of any lodging. No one did. They were, of course, turned away at the inn, and eventually had to settle for a night in the stable. As they headed around the property to the stable, a long line of candle-carrying guests followed them. When the guests neared the stable, they were treated to a scene of shepherds sitting near a small fire while tending their sheep. As the guests took in this tranquil scene, suddenly the sound of a heavenly choir was heard, and angels appeared in the night sky. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. first few years of our production we had three angels dressed in white robes standing on ladders that had been draped in black felt. We handled the lighting of the angels in such a way as to make the angels appear to be standing in mid-air. It was very effective. The angels always solicited oohs and ahs from the guests, especially the children. One year there was an older Hispanic man from Fairfield who came to our celebration. Not knowing what to expect, he was so surprised and so touched when he saw the angels that he fell to his knees in reverence. We eventually used a boom truck for our angel scene. Along with the help of my good friend and partner, Dick Davis, I built a special harness that allowed the angel to stand as if he were in mid-air. The angel was very effective because when he appeared, he was about 40 feet in the air, and then he gradually descended until he hovered about 10 feet above the shepherd's little campfire. After the angel gave his salutation and instructed the shepherds to go to the manger, they immediately gathered their sheep and headed up the little slope to the stable. The guests just naturally fell in behind them and made their way to the back of the barn, where they gathered around the corral to witness the major scene. Since the whole production was held outside, weather was always a big concern. 
One year, during the month of December, we had rain, 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 and more rain. It rained pretty much every day, right up to the night of our first performance. Then the rain stopped. It didn't rain for the next four days, long enough for us to complete all of our performances. Then it started again, big time. We had flooding in Napa just a week or so later. We were blessed through the years to never have to cancel a performance because of weather. We had many friends, neighbors, and total strangers attend our night in Bethlehem. One year, we were privileged to have a local Catholic choir join us. They sang Handel's Hallelujah Chorus from the Messiah as part of our opening gathering. Many of our LDS friends joined with them. It was heartwarming to see Mormons and Catholics standing side by side on our property, singing praises to God. We continued our Halloween parties and Christmas reenactments for many years. As a result, we have accumulated a storehouse full of extraordinary memories that have become even more special to us through the passage of time. Towards the end of the 90s, I began to think of retirement, and Molly was thinking of continuing her education. She was anxious to work on a master's degree, and then move on to a doctorate. In 1999, we decided that she needed to be at BYU full-time for a while. The plan was to rent a place for her in Utah, and for me to stay home, work, and then visit as often as I could. I made arrangements so I could work six days a week for a couple of weeks in a row and then go to Utah for four or five days at a stretch. It was a lot of traveling, but it worked pretty well. To help cover the expenses of maintaining two households and all the traveling, we decided to rent our home in Napa as a vacation retreat on the weekends. Napa had become a huge tourist attraction because of the wine industry and there was a big demand for places to stay. We had no trouble renting it, and were able to get a whopping $850 per night. Often, three or four couples would pool together to rent it. During the time it was rented, if I was in town and not in Utah, I would stay with my sister Elaine and her husband Ace. They always seemed happy to have me, and it was good to be with them. It really worked out very nice. Whenever I was preparing for renters, Molly's sister-in-law, Sandy Hobaugh, was a huge help to me, cleaning, bringing in fresh flowers, baking special treats for the guests, things like that. In a way, we felt that our home was helping us to let our light shine, even when we weren't there. Our library was full of good books, including the three that Molly had written, A New Spirit Within You, A More Perfect Union, and The Forgotten Virtue. The scriptures were left out and available to anyone interested. 
There were pictures of our family, pictures of the Savior, and pictures of the temple dispersed throughout the home. Besides that, there was a wonderful warm feeling about our home. Guests would often leave us notes commenting on the peaceful spirit they felt there. Letting our light shine in these and other ways has brought many blessings into our lives. One of our great desires has always been to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those around us. We tried to make our home and property a place where the Spirit of the Lord could touch the hearts of those who enter it. And I feel that to some measure we were able to do that. Many gospel discussions and missionary lessons were held in our home. However, I feel regretful that there were undoubtedly some missed opportunities to let our light shine. As long as the Lord grants us daily breath, we have an opportunity to do better. I pray that as a family, will all strive more diligently to let our light shine. One final thought concerning the Christmas reenactment. I'm so grateful that under the direction of Norman, Ingrid, and their family, and with the help of the other Sorensen family members living in Utah, their tradition not only continues, but has grown and been improved upon, bringing wonderful memories for another generation of our family and giving them the opportunity to let their light shine. Mm -hmm.